Is it up this year? So uh, if you know somebody needs to be baptized, it's uh, one of the two commands that the Lord has given the church. The first being the uh, baptism, and the second, obviously, the Lord's Supper, which we will be having next Sunday. Um, that's a statement of faith, I didn't know for sure, but it's the first Sunday of the month. So anyway, um, and we're going to be looking today at John chapter 11, um, and let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity to open your word and uh, um, uh, look into it. We just pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would be among us and that uh, it would, uh, he would um, open our minds to what you would have us to learn, that we would recognize and see the glory of God in the word of God, and that your word uh, would not return to you void, but it would accomplish that wherein it was sent. We'd ask, Lord, that the study of your word would be a a sweet-smelling Savior to you, to you, Lord, as a, an offering to you as we, as we study the Word of God. For Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Now the children can be dismissed to their class. I was supposed to announce that first. And we'll be looking now at John chapter 11. And I'm, if you notice in your outline, um, the date's wrong because uh, the outline was last week's, but we only got through the introduction last week, so I'm promising I'm going to try to get through the actual outline today, and uh, for those of you that saved it from last week, uh, we can continue on in it, and for those who didn't, there's, a, there's some available in the back here by the door, and uh, last week we noticed that um, John has organized the book of John uh, with seven uh, signs, some miraculous signs or some ions, and we looked uh, briefly at six of those leading up to the seventh sign, the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, which we're going to be looking at this week. And um, it's, if, if uh, numerology in the Bible uh, means anything, then this seventh sign um, before the cross is uh, certainly significant as it is the number seven of completion. And we said last week that some of the things that are kind of interesting in the study of, the, of, of John 11 and 12, we really see that, um, humanly speaking, the leaders and the, the Pharisees and the uh, high priests, they wanted to get rid of Jesus, but not during the Feast of, of uh, uh, Unleavened Bread, during the Passover week, but they wanted to get rid of him afterwards because uh, uh, they were af afraid of the people, the masses that were there, and that they might riot. And uh, we said that uh, but God had a different plan. He had a plan that Jesus would go to the cross during the Passover because that would be, um, he was ultimately the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And we saw that in uh, Mark and in Luke, uh, it said that uh, there was a woman that came and anointed Jesus. And then we find in John chapter 11, we identify the woman and she is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. So we, John gives us some more information regarding that. We said at the, the six days before the cross when this woman Mary anointed Jesus uh, for his burial that um, it was at the, um, the house of Simon the leper. And so we know that no lepers had people at their house unless they were cured. And there was no curing of lepers until Jesus came. And so he was obviously one of those uh, that uh, had been cured. And, and we find that when she anointed him, she used this, uh, this uh, nard that was worth about a year's wages that she poured out on him. And 
in the other Gospels, it talks about the fact that the disciples or some of the disciples were upset about this because this could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. But we find that John gives us a lot more information on that in John chapter 12 because he says it was really Judas who was upset. And it wasn't because he was all worried about giving the money to the poor, but he was the one that held the money bag and he would have loved to have that nard sold for a year's wages, had the money put in the money bag, and he was stealing from the money bag. And so we see that Judas uh, then has, it says in the other Gospels, that the uh, uh, Satan entered into his heart, and when he left that, that event where uh, Mary anointed Jesus, he went out and he plotted to uh, betray Jesus. And the leaders who were planning to do this after the Feast of um, Unleavened Bread, now were dependent upon Judas. There was one in the midst of Christ who was a traitor, and they were all excited about that, and they looked forward to this secret betrayal that would occur somewhere where there wouldn't be a lot of people around. And of course, then we find in John chapter 13, the upper room, and they're, they're having the Last Supper, uh, celebrating Passover, and Judas uh, now again has Satan enter into his heart. He knows that Jesus is going to go to Gethsemane, where he often went to pray with his disciples afterwards. He knew that would be a great secret place to betray him, and there wouldn't be a lot of crowd around. And so he now goes out into the night, and Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And he had previously said, one of you who dips his hand in the sob with me will betray me. And remember what the disciples said that night. They looked at each other and they said, is it I, Lord? Is it I? They still did not know, even the night of the betrayal. And Judas was holding the money bag. They thought he went out to go buy food for the poor. That that's what, his job, what he was actually doing. And he was actually going out to betray Christ. Of course, Christ was not surprised in all that. And it moved the timetable up to the event then that of the cross at the Passover. And we see that this event, the, the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, is actually what helped to precipitate this because it's now six days before the cross and she's anointing Christ at the, at the home of Simon the leper. And why would she be doing that? Well, he had just raised her brother from the dead just a few weeks before. And now she was, it, this dinner was in his honor, and Lazarus was there, Mary and Martha was there, John tells us in John chapter 12. So kind of bringing you up to date then, here in our outline we have, so John described seven, the number of completeness uh, of signs, and we, today we want to look at the seventh sign now, this event that really helped precipitate the cross. And I said, remember here that a sign points to something beyond itself. Now we're getting to the outline here. We're going to actually move through this. And therefore... Uh, and, and the sign that we're looking at here, Jesus says in verse 40 and verse 4, he says, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And so we're going to be looking for the glory of God in the raising of Lazarus. And what could be more glorifying than to see the power that Jesus has over death? And he says in this, in this text that he is the resurrection and the life. He had said before that he is the bread of life, and there he fed 5,000 men plus women and children on the hillside bread that had never grown in the fields, never been harvested, never been um, kneaded into dough and heated in an oven. 
and he demonstrated that I am statement by feeding the 5,000. We see that he claims to be the light of the world and there he gives sight to a blind man that had never seen before. And so now in this chapter, in this section, he calls himself, I am the resurrection and the life. And we see this raising of Lazarus, which is an amazing miracle. So as we study this sign, we want to see the glory of God. And I have, remember, Exodus chapter 33, and that is when Moses went up on the mount with God to receive the Ten Commandments, and he asked God to show him his glory. And you all remember what happened there. God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he passed by, and there he declares many of his attributes to him that he says i am the lord the lord and he says i'm merciful and i'm i'm righteous and i will not let the the uh, the sins uh, go unjudged he says so he shows himself gracious and merciful and righteous and just and holy and he demonstrates or he he declares his attributes and here in this section we want to look at the glory of god through the, uh, the raising of Lazarus, and we see the glory of Christ. So I, I have in your outline, it may, not, it may seem obvious that in studying the raising of Lazarus from the dead, one would see the glory of Christ, but this is not actually true. Because it says in, in, a, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And we see in this very chapter, that there are some witnesses of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and they go and they have to tell the Pharisees and the, and the high priests, uh, he raised him from the dead, what are we going to do about this? Not he raised him from the dead, he must be God, but what are we going to do? Because the next thing, they're going to take away our place and our position, the Romans are, everybody's going to follow after him, and they miss the glory. So they're worried more about the Romans that they're under the authority of, and they have this limited um, uh, government that they can have uh, that, that Rome is allowing them to do, and they're worried about how the Romans are going to react to it. So here we see that you can miss the glory of God even in the resurrection or the raising of Lazarus. So God must open the eyes of the beholder if they are to see his glory. Remember uh, in the very beginning of the book of John, John speaks of John the Baptist, and he says that he was a light in the wilderness and that he was a light to show men the light, that he pointed to the light. And the question really comes up, why is it, how is it that the light of the world comes into the world and the world can't see the light? And the reason for that is because they're blind and they can't see. And that's why John the Baptist pointed to the light of the world. And, and so the blindness of men, spiritual blindness, is really seen in the fact that uh, some see the raising even of Lazarus, and they don't debate the fact that he was actually dead and raised from the dead, and yet they do not yet believe. So, I have in your outline here, notice from verse 4 and 40, this is for God's glory. In verse 4, he says, No, it is, this sickness will not end to death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And I have in your outline here, this is for God's glory, yet it it is God's Son who is performing the miracles. And I have in your note, you cannot glorify God apart from glorifying the Son of God. And if you listen to the words of John chapter 5, where Jesus had spoken to them before, he says 
in John chapter 5, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And we're going to see that today in the raising of Lazarus. And then he says, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. You cannot honor God if you do not honor the son of God. And that's clear from what he says there. I, I just, I, I, I want to go a little, kind, little tiny side note uh, of a little story years ago when I was a very young man and uh, you get the event that happens so often where you have the knocking of the door and there's two people standing there at your doorstep and they want to witness to Jehovah the Father and and I said to them I do not believe that you believe in the same Christ and the same Son of God that I believe in because you believe that he is a created being, that he is not equal with God, that he is not co-regent with the Father and the Spirit as part of the Trinity. And they said, oh, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus. And I said, but you don't believe in the same Jesus that I believe in. And I said, I, I have a problem with a scripture that is found in the book of John. And I said, um, when Thomas, who has been with Christ for three and a half years, and now he is risen from the dead, and Thomas does not believe because he has not seen the risen Lord yet. And the disciples come to him and they say, we've seen the Lord and he is risen. Thomas said, I will not believe this unless I put my finger in his hands, unless I put my hand in his side, then I will believe. And what does God, what does Jesus do? Well, he, he, he meets that very need, that very doubt that he has, and there you see in in uh, the book of John in chapter 20, he's now standing before him. He says, put forth your hand and, and put your finger in my nail wounds and in the scar in my side. And Thomas says to him, it says, and it says that those words, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And he worshiped him. And I said to these uh, young, this young man, there was one that was obviously being sort of tutored by the older man. I said, I don't know how you can look at that and not see that Jesus is God. And, and they had this discussion between them and they didn't have an answer. And they said to me, can we come back and bring one of our elders from the church and talk to you about this very verse because we're not quite sure what to do with this verse. And I said, sure, my wife remembers this. And I said, but uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to have one of the elders from my church. And so we set up a meeting. And it was probably a foolish thing to do because I didn't really get that far with it. But it's kind of interesting. We had the meeting. And as you probably, many of you probably know, Pastor Santos, he was at the meeting. He was the elder that I asked to have at that meeting. And they came. And so I posed the question again. And we got the answer then from their elder. And this is the answer. Thomas stood before Jesus having the opportunity to put his hand in his side and put his finger in the nail prints in his hand. 
And he said to Jesus, my Lord, which is another way of saying master. And then he looked to heaven and he said, and my God. Now take something out of context and just tear it out and go back to that scripture. He said to him, it didn't say he said the first part of the verse to him and then he looked to the father and he said to Jehovah. And I just laughed and said, you know, you totally miss what, what, what he is saying. And Jesus accepts the worship of God there. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 don't call me God. Don't say, don't say that. He accepts that worship because he is God. And so we come back to this verse now in, in John chapter 11. He said, this is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And you cannot honor the father and not honor the son. And that's what I have in your outline here. So now we come to the actual opening of the scriptures here. In John chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was, at this, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Just a couple points here. Uh, John writing this in 90, 95 AD, is clarifying the Bethany. This is the Bethany of Mary and Martha. There are several Bethanies in Scripture in, the, um, in Israel. But this is the Bethany, he says over in verse 18, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So this is the Bethany that's two miles or less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. So he identifies the location. Now the setting here, if we remember, is that Jesus is preaching and teaching up in Perea. It says in verse 40, then Jesus went back across the Jordan, the, verse 40 of the chapter before, he went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Let's identify the place where John was baptizing in the early days. And that we find in John 1:28. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of Jordan where John was baptizing. And so we find there are two Bethanies and Jesus is near that second Bethany. It's the one where John the Baptist was baptizing on the other side of Jordan. And it is one or two days journey away from this Bethany near Jerusalem. So we have this location. Jesus is one or two days away from where Lazarus is now lying sick. And the sisters send a messenger and we don't have the name of the messenger but we could just make up a jewish name and say that um that he is job or something and he is going up to find jesus and bring him this message the lord he, lord the one you love is sick and i have in your outline the one you is the blank there notice she doesn't say the one who really loves you is sick that would be like blackmail that would be like bribery you know, Lazarus, the one who really loves you, he's sick, you've got to do something about it. And, and there's, I, th I think, something that we can learn from that. And that, the idea there is if, if we are uh, going to one day stand before God based on our love for Christ, we're in a lot of trouble. Because if, if God operated on, in our life based on our love for him, we are up and down, we are fickle, we are earthbound, uh, we are uh, on again, off again, we are lukewarm. But God's love 
is consistent and faithful and gracious always. Romans 8, 35 says, who can separate us from the love of Christ that is found in Christ Jesus? And then he gives this whole litany of possible things that one would offer up that could possibly separate us. And he says, I'm convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor principalities nor powers nor sickness nor danger nor sword and famine. And he goes through everything. Nothing, he says, can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. So here is Christ, and they come with a message. The one that you love is sick. And they just leave it in his hands. It's not like, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. They just present the problem. And that's the way we need to be when we come to the Lord. They didn't have an explanation of what he must do. They just put it in his hands. And certainly they knew the reason that he was up preaching there in Bethany beyond the Jordan was he had left in John chapter 10. He had left Jerusalem because they took up stones to kill him was one of the, the clear evident reasons that he left. It was not yet his time to die. It was not yet his time to go to the cross. And he had said, I and my father are one. And he said, for which of these miracles uh, are you uh, wanting to kill me? And they said, for none of these miracles, but because you claim to be equal with God. And so he left then because they had tried to kill him. And now he was one or two days away outside of Jerusalem. And one or two days away from Jerusalem, he's away from where Lazarus is and Lazarus is sick. Well, I have in your outline, why do we find sickness, even death, among God's creation? Because here's his friend Lazarus, who is sick, why do we find death among God's creation? And certainly, ultimately, it's a result of the fall. Man was created in God's image, and he was created for eternity, and there he was in the Garden of Eden, and man fell. We remember that man had access to the tree of life, and that tree of life would give him life everlasting. And he had perfect communion with God. He walked with God in the cool of the garden, and he was sinless. He was innocent. But Satan came, and he tempted Eve, and God had given the command that you can eat everything and anything in the garden except for the one tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she did eat and gave to Adam, and he ate. And immediately, God had said that the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And immediately they saw they were naked. And that glory that covered them, that, that, that was the, the glory of their relationship with God, it sort of reminds you of Moses when he was up on the mountain and he came down. Remember, for 30 days he was shining so bright they couldn't even look upon him and they had to veil his face. They had that glory. Immediately that glory left. And their spirit was not able to commune with the spirit of god because they had died spiritually immediately and what did they do remember they covered themselves and they hid and we see that spiritual death that occurred and they began to die physically and ultimately they died physically because they did not have access to that tree of life anymore in the garden because they were put out of the garden we see in revelation in the very end of the revelation we have access again to that tree of life you talk about the greatest biochemist that ever lived. Somehow, the water of life and the tree of life will keep us alive forever, and there will be no decay, and there will be no disintegration, and, and we won't have to see the chiropractor, Mike, when we're working on the project, and we won't have to 
deal with so many other ailments that occur with aging because that tree of life will keep us alive forever and it's God's creation. But they were put out of the garden. So ultimately, sickness is a result of the fall, but sometimes it is the result of sin. And we see that in John chapter 5, verse 14, where he comes to the invalid, that been invalid for 38 years, he raises him up, and then he finds him later in the temple, and he says, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And so we clearly know that he's been an invalid for 38 years because of sin in his life. We also see Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, that he warns them not to eat or drink of the communion table in an unworthy manner, because there were clearly evidences they were suing each other they were going to court there was uh, a man there in their midst that was living with his father's wife so that would be his stepmother and and yet taking the communion there were there were quarrels among them there was a lot of things that they talked about in first corinthians and paul says that they then come to the communion table like everything's okay and they take communion like they're not and certainly none of us are worthy to come to the communion table and take communion. But they were living in outward, blatant sin. And they were not keeping their, their sin accounts confessed up. Because we know if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we can come to the communion table and partake because if we truly are repentant and turn away from our sin, we are forgiven. And we are cleansed, and we can do that. Well, there is times, though, that there is sickness as a result of sin, and sometimes it has nothing to do with sin. We see that in Job. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. And yet there's Job, and he's got boils all over his body, and there's this, this discussion between Satan and God, and Job is allowed to be afflicted but not unto death, He's limited. Satan has the opportunity to do certain things, but not everything to him. And so he was, he was not sinning that brought about this affliction that was to him. And we see that in John chapter 9, where the blind man is there outside of the, the synagogue, and, and the question is posed, who sinned? Either the, was he, did he sin somehow in the womb, or did his parents sin that he's blind? And Jesus said, neither. And so there's a case where um, it was not sin that brought about his blindness, but this was for the glory of God, and he was going to demonstrate uh, his ability to uh, heal this blind man, a man who had never seen, and no one had ever done that before, and it pointed to the fact that he was, in fact, the Messiah. So now we come to verse 5. Now it says there, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, before, the, the word is phileo. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And we see his brotherly love, the love of a man for another man. Now we see his agape love in this one. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And John puts that in right before the next verse. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two, two more days. As if to almost dispel any question, why would he wait there two more days if he loved him? So why would he do that? So you go, well, the reason he waited two more days was because he loved them. And we'll see further on that it is going to more demonstrate the glory of God by the fact that he waits two more days. 
So I have in your outline here, his love is emphasized. Skip this thought and you may wonder about his concern. God's timing, not his mother's in John chapter 2. Remember she said, the, the wine has run out, do something. She's almost like saying, do something. And he says, this is not my time. He said, my time has not yet come to reveal himself. Uh, and yet he, he does in love at that wedding. Uh, and then he's, his brothers say at the, for the Feast of the Tabernacles, go down and, and announce yourself at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And he says, for you, any time is right, but for me, it's not yet the time. There would come a time in John chapter 12, verse, um, I believe it's 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That time would come, but it was not yet in those other two instances. So God's timing, he waits two days, but he is not late he is right on time that he waits two days. Remember, Lazarus is already dead. He's probably died the same day the messenger left to find Jesus. And I have on your outline, if you flip it over to the back, you'll see a little illustration that I have there. This is, uh, yes, these are beautiful illustrations that I've done, and I'll be happy to sign them if you want to frame them and put them in your house uh, later. Um, obviously, they're a little sloppy, but there's, there's uh, Kent, one commentator, says he feels that it is one day away the location of Lazarus and, the, and where the messenger comes from to where Jesus is. Uh, um, you've all heard of Swindoll, and he says it's two days away. There is speculation on how far away the messenger was to Jesus. So let's take one day. That's the illustration on the left. If you go to the bottom of the arrow, you see the messenger goes to Jesus. It takes him a day. Then he turns around on the right side, and he comes back a day. So if he goes out one day and he comes back one day and he arrives back and Jesus waits two days and then travels one day, when he gets back, the messenger, after two days, he finds that, Jesus, that, the, that Lazarus has already been dead two days because if you get four days there, if you go one day up, two days, and one day back, in Jesus' case, if he was two days waiting and traveled one day, it's only three days. So that means Lazarus had to be dead before that. And you go back and go, well, then the, the time when he actually was dead then had to be just shortly after the messenger left with the message, the one you love is sick. So actually, when he comes and speaks to Jesus, he speaks a lie. He doesn't know he's speaking a lie, but it's an untruth. He could have really said, the one that, that you love is dead for a day. And he could have said that to Jesus. And the only one that knew that was Jesus. He already knew that Lazarus was dead. And that's why he chooses to wait two more days and then travel a day. If on the other hand, Swindoll's right and it takes two days, then you go to the second illustration. You see he travels two days. Jesus waits two days and then Jesus has to travel two days. And so we find there's the four days then, Jesus waiting two days and then coming two days. So again, that means when the messenger got to Jesus with the message, the one you love is sick, the message should have been the one you love just died. And Jesus knows that. So if it was one day or two days, in either case, if you were the messenger and you traveled up a day and traveled back a day, or you traveled up a day, up two days, and, Je and Lazarus just dies, it takes you two days to get back. When you get back, you have a very unusual thing to tell Mary and Martha compared to what they're going to tell you, the messenger. If your name's Job, the messenger, and you get back, you're going to say, the one I told Jesus, the one you love, is sick and he said to me this sickness will not end in death but is for God's glory that the son of God may be glorified by it 
and then Mary and Martha tell the messenger, he's already been dead two days. Now that would have been kind of a confusing message to bring back from Jesus. And so we see a little later on, as we get back to your outline, that Martha has a kind of a confusing statement that she says to him in a little bit. So, now we come to verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, uh, what, what, was he, what did he say? I guess we have to go back and look at verse, uh, the previous verse. Uh, they say, he says to the disciples, let's go back to Judea. And they said, Rabbi, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you and yet you're going back there? See, they remembered that they'd come to Perea and he was having great success in Perea. They're preaching and many were coming out and believing him. It says in verse 42 of the chapter before. And Jesus says, are there not 12 hours a day light? A man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles for he has no light. And he's really telling them here that we're walking in the light of God's will. And we're not going to go back to Jerusalem or near Jerusalem there in Bethany and, and then I'm going to be crucified because it's not yet time. The time has not yet come. I'm walking in the light. Just stay with me and have faith because we're not going to go back there and this isn't going to be all out of control because, oh, we shouldn't have returned because we're walking in the light. It's not yet time to go to the cross. But then in verse 11, it says, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so we see in your outline here, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Why does God often call death for the believer sleep? We see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 13 and 14, it says, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You see, none of us are getting off this planet alive. I mean, that's not a real profound truth. We all know that. There apparently, it seems in the scriptures, there are only two individuals that ever got off this planet alive. That, and that was, do you all know who they are? Enoch walked with God and was not. And then we also have Elisha. And there is some speculation that they will come back as the two witnesses there in the book of the Revelation that are killed in the street and all the world looks upon them and sees them dead for three and a half days and then they stand up. And it's kind of interesting when you think that was written 2,000 years ago and people would wonder, how could the whole world see these two witnesses stand up? Now we look on CNN and we see it live and it's over in Baghdad or something and we go, that makes perfect sense. I can see how the whole world could be looking upon these two witnesses that are laying there dead in the street and now they stand up. It's interesting how the scriptures just, and they're always truthful. Well, well, here we are now and we have this, this issue then of Jesus, he calls this sleep. And I have in your outline, Christ underwent the full horror of death, separation, that we might be absent from the body and present with the Lord. One day we will be joined again with our resurrected body when Christ calls it from sleep. You see, it's appointed on the man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And we will either 
we go asleep in Christ, which immediately is absent from the body, present with the Lord, but one day we're going to be joined with our body in the resurrection. Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection in his glorified body, and us, the second fruits, I guess you'd call us, the, the, the following fruit of the resurrection. And it makes me think there's only two ways off this planet. One is in Christ and one is in your sin. That's really it. it just a funny little story. I, I, I run. Some people know that I run. And, I, and I, um, I, I'm kind of getting slower and slower as I run. But in, uh, in 2005, I ran my first marathon. And uh, this year in October, I'll be running my 10th marathon. And... I guess I'm more like a fast jogger now than a runner because the guys that really run, I see them for about a minute to a minute and a half at the very beginning of the marathon. And by the time I get in, they've already been back and showered and they had dinner and they watched a movie and they watched War and Peace and, and they, read, they read War and Peace and then they see me coming in. So I'm kind of a fast jogger. But, but I have these sneakers and I found these special sneakers uh, a number of years ago and I uh, get them in Colorado and uh, in this, this store that teaches you to, to run more in your midfoot. And I still, when I get tired, I run on my heels and I wear the heels down. So I get my old sneakers down and I, and I tape them and I put the shoe goo on them. I build the heels up so I can keep using them longer. And after I put about, I don't know, 250 or 300 miles on them in training, um, then I finally throw them out. And I go online reluctantly and I order another pair of sneakers for about 135 bucks. And then the day comes, and I get this box on my front porch. And I tear off the package, and I open the box. And, that, and these are really cool boxes. They, they don't just have a lid. They have a folding lid that just hinges. And you open up the Newton runners, and you can just smell those new Newtons in there. And they're just awesome. And I get them out, and I take my old sneakers, and I just throw them in the box, and I close the box. And those old sneakers, they're wore out, and they've been shoe-gooed a bunch of times. And they're all sweaty, and they're, they're broken down. And I was thinking the other day, when I put an old pair in that new box, that's like us in Christ. We're either going to one day stand before God in our new box, and you can't see the dirty old sneaker in there that's us, because we're in Christ. And God's going to see the glory of of Christ, and we're hid in him, it talks about in the scriptures, that we're hid in Christ. And so when God judges us, it's already judged at the cross of Calvary. Our sin, he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when he says, I pronounce you righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, who gets the glory? Jesus gets all the glory because we're the dirty sneakers inside the box. It's either that or we stand before God one day in our dirty sneakers all by ourselves and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. We come with our own theology that says our good works will outweigh our bad and that's bad theology because God says you've got to stand before me absolutely righteous and there's no one that's righteous, only Christ. Well, that's the picture of being in Christ. And so he has fallen asleep because he is a believer. 
Why does God often call death for the believer sleep? What's sleep like? You go to sleep and, you, and you're kind of a mess by the time you go to sleep. You're exhausted and you're wore out. And sometimes I go to sleep and I wake up the next day and it didn't even look like anything happened. Like you just pull the cover back a little bit and the bed's made again because they just crashed. And yet you go to sleep expectantly to wake up on the other side refreshed and renewed and that's the picture of the believer in Christ who dies. They die in Christ and they go to sleep because it's going to be absent from the body and they're going to be present with the Lord. So one day we'll be joined again with our resurrected body when Christ calls it from sleep. For the believer, death has no sting. This is what's going to happen here. He's, de he's demonstrating his power over death. And death has been swallowed up in victory, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. We're found guilty before God because of the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no sting. It's like the picture of the father and the daughter in the car, and the window's down, and the bee flies in the car, and the girl's freaking out because she's got the allergy to the bee sting, and if she gets stung, she's going to have anaphylaxis, and the father reaches out, and he grabs the the, the, uh, the bee for a second and he opens his hand and the bee's flying around and she's freaking out and he says to her, don't worry, honey, I got the stinger. I got the stinger. It's already out and the bee's going to die and you're not going to get stung because they only have one stinger and that's Christ. He's removed the sting of death. For the unbeliever, death ends in condemnation and separation. It says there in John 3.18, we all know 3.16, but 3.18 says... Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. You see, the, 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 the condemnation's already there. The, the sentencing is yet to be occurred in the unbeliever's life, but the condemnation's already there. They already stand under the wrath of God for the unbeliever until they come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Well, in verse 17, we come to that. On his arrival then... Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. It wasn't a real discovery for Jesus. He already knew that, but that's the way he writes it. He found that he'd already been in the tomb. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Well, Jesus arrives to the funeral. I have in your outline, you know, he ended every funeral he ever attended. He never attended a funeral where the deceased remained deceased after he was done at the funeral. He, no one ever died and stayed dead in the presence of Christ when Christ was alive. We have the widow of Nain's son. We have Jairus' daughter. Now we have Lazarus. Some have said, oh, what about the cross? But remember, Christ had already died on the cross before the thief on either side of him died because the centurion went and broke the legs of the thief on either side. But when he came to Jesus, he decided he had already died. And so he didn't have to break his legs. And it fulfilled prophecy that said not one bone would be broken. And there the centurion, who was an expert in death, ran the, sword, ran the, the spear in his side 
to confirm that he was dead, and out came blood and water. But no one ever died in the presence of the living Lord because he is the resurrection and life. And so we come to this event, and he's, we, we see an interesting conversation. Martha says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Some have interpreted this as she's rebuking the Lord. There's a, a, a little sting in her statement here, and she's saying, Lord, where were you? Couldn't you have been down here on time? But that doesn't really make sense because the messenger would have gotten there and he would have already been dead two days. She knew the earliest the Lord could have gotten there, he would have been dead two days. And then she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. There's two interpretations of this and I'm not sure which one is right. So I'll give you both interpretations. One is saying we prayed, we fasted, we ask God to please raise our brother Lazarus before he would die, to raise him up from his bed of illness. But God didn't hear our prayers. But I know if you would have been here, Lord, if circumstances would have been different, circumstances that were out of your control, and you were up in Perea and Lazarus was here, if you would have been praying, well, then he wouldn't have died. That's one interpretation, and it might be right. A second interpretation that... I think maybe better, is she is vacillating between grief for Lazarus, her brother who's just died, and hope. Because the messenger had come two days earlier and he said, this sickness will not end in death. Those are the words of her Lord. But it is for the glory of God. And so she could be wrestling back and forth between grief and hope somehow is it possible that Lazarus is not going to die or not going to stay dead? I don't know. I'll leave that to you to, to wrestle with your own self as what she's saying there. But Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha, being very cerebral, says, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. And what is she saying here? There was a debate that went on between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. There's no real resurrection information there that, that you can grab onto as much as the rest of the Old Testament. The Psalms and the prophets and the Pharisees believed in the whole canon of the Old Testament. And they believed in a resurrection. Remember, there was a Sadducees trying to trip Jesus up about this business about a woman marries a man and he dies and then she marries his brother and he dies and he marries the next brother and they got seven brothers. Who is it that she's going to be married to in heaven? And it was a whole thing, mockery of resurrection. And Jesus said to them, you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. And he says, there's neither giving in marriage or taking in marriage in heaven. And by the way, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead, but they're alive. And if, by the way, Moses and Elijah, I'm going to speak with them on the Mount of Transfiguration pretty soon, and they're not dead either. They're going to be there in their pre-resurrection body, that body that we get when we're absent from the body and present with the Lord. And all three of those disciples that were up there recognized it was Moses and Elijah. So what that we're going to look like, I don't know, but... I think we're going to look similar to what we look like now, but it won't be yet our glorified body. 
But she had her theology right. That's one thing you, can, you can't fault uh, Martha for. And I want to just read two verses, and there's, just, there's plenty that you could get throughout the Old Testament. But Job chapter, 9, Job chapter 19, verse 25 says this, I know that my Redeemer lives. And remember, Job was the first book of the Old Testament ever written, because Job is even older than, um, than Moses, who wrote Genesis. And there he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and then in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another how my heart yearns within me. Job knew there was a resurrection of the body one day. And she knew that that was coming. And she knew in the last day she was going to get her resurrection body. And you notice in the theology here, there's something I just want to bring out lightly, and that is some have this theology that you come back in another form and you come back in another form and you come back as a cow or you come back as an animal or you come back as a servant or you come back different levels based on how your karma worked out in this life and all that. Job says, I know I will see God in my own body. It's not coming back in another body. It's, it's, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. There's not this second chance, third chance, fourth chance, live a good life kind of a thing. Well, um, verse 25 and 26 are the greatest piece of news that had ever fallen on the ears of man. Martha is thinking about an event, and Jesus says, look at me a person. Not I did resurrect or I will resurrect, not past or future, but present tense. I am, ego emi, the ever-present self-existent resurrection in life. Salvation does not come in a system, a code, or a religion. It comes in a living person, Jesus Christ, who is resurrection and life. This whole miracle is a sign pointing to Christ and his glory. Well, he says, I am the resurrection and life. Who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord. She told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And she makes a statement that's very powerful. She really demonstrates her real faith, and she doesn't have any more questions for him. And after this, she leaves and goes back and gets her sister. She's looked at the eyes of Christ and heard his statement. Well, what does it mean to believe? How do you know if you believe? I have in your outline to stretch yourself out upon, to cast yourself completely upon him. Remember the story of John Payton as a missionary in the South Sea Islands to the Hebrides uh, Islands, and there he was writing the Bible and, and translating it over into the uh, language of the natives, and he didn't have a word for believe, and he wrestled with that for several months to try to come up with a translation of the word to believe. It's a pretty important word to have in the scriptures, and one day, I like this part of the story, if I understand the story correctly, he was out hunting, and they got a deer. He got a deer, and uh, he and a native carried the deer back on the pole. And when they got back to his beachside hut with the front porch and the chairs on the, the chaise lounge or whatever on the front porch, the native, they flopped down the heavy deer, and the native just cast himself upon the, on the chair, on the chaise lounge, and just said, I'm so exhausted. And he just threw himself on it. And... John Payton went, that's the word I've been looking for, believe, to put all your weight upon, to cast yourself completely upon that 
chair. And that's the idea in, 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 the, in the translation in the, to the Indians of the Hebrides Islands today. It says, he uses the word to cast yourself upon or to put all your weight upon. It better hold, the work of Christ better hold because I'm totally trusting on the work of Christ for my salvation. And that's what it means to believe. Believe his claims, his words to the woman at the well. He claims to be the Messiah. To the blind man, he claims to be the son of man. To Martha, he claims to be the resurrection of life and life. And if you don't believe his words, then he said, remember to John the Baptist who was in prison and said, do we, are you the one or do we wait for another? He says, tell him the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the dead are raised from the dead. If you don't believe me for my word's sake, believe me for my work's sake. It's a lower level of belief, but it is one that Christ has given us that we might attach our faith to him and we might know that he is God. So believe me for my very work's sake, it says there in John chapter 14, verse 11. When we come to verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, that is Mary, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, Lord. They replied, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Well, the words troubled in spirit, deeply moved and troubled in spirit, the word is terasso, and it means agitated. It means he groaned in indignation. It's a difficult word to translate. It is Christ entering into the humanity and suffering and the, the result of death there at the tomb of Lazarus. And he sees Mary weeping, and he sees the crowd weeping, and he sees the effect of death. And he is soon going to go to the cross to totally conquer death. But today he has come down to this funeral, and he is going to conquer the death of Lazarus. And he groans within himself. R.C. Sproul says, deeply troubled is much too soft a translation. He was irate. What caused the anger of the Son of God to boil up and overflow? He was in the presence of the ravages and destruction of the greatest enemy of mankind. That is death. And it says in scriptures that he came to destroy the enemy of death. The last enemy of man is death. And that is what he will ultimately destroy. He looked past even this event to the cross where he was going to go and defeat death. Behold the Son of Man, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief we have from Isaiah 53. See his humility. He groaned. He was troubled. He wept. He knows our pains and sorrows, our loss. He understands. He has been tempted in all ways just as we were yet without sin. And he understands our weakness and our infirmities and therefore we can go to him and, and ask for mercy and grace because he understands us. So I have in your outline here, seeing is not always believing, but believing is always seen. We come to verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, and he says, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there was a bad odor, for he has been there four days. He said, didn't I not tell you if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
Well, notice in verse 40, it doesn't say, if you believe, I will do the miracle. The miracle is not conditioned on her faith, but for Martha to see the glory of God in the miracle, she had to have her faith in Christ. Sproul says it's easy to believe in God. It's believing God that's so difficult. It's easy to believe in God, but it's believing God that's so hard. And she had to believe that he was, in fact, God. And he said, roll back the stone, and they better get rolling. <laughs> because something really big is going to happen. Can you imagine the disciples as they, one, two, three, pushed that stone out of the way? And what was going to happen next? And wondering what was going to happen next? And the excitement, but the fear? And by now, he stinketh in the King James, it says, there is no reason that uh, Hendrickson in his outline, his, his commentary says to translate by now there will be a stench because often those tombs were even, they had a little vent designed just so the decomposition of the body could occur quickly. They got them in the grave that very day when someone died. They didn't, the Jews didn't have this embalming process like the Egyptians. They put some spices on them and they put them in there and they would have to roll back the stone for the next burial because often there were multiple burials. In fact, it is interesting to note in 1873, uh, they found a tomb with the inscriptions of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus over in the area of Bethany. There's still a Bethany there and there's a tomb over there that has their names on all three and it could be their actual tomb. So how long would you know before you have to roll that stone open? That's why they had the vents. That's why they wanted the body to decompose. They wanted to turn into a skeleton quickly. And there's no reason to think that she was saying, by now there will be a stench. But the reality is, by now there is a stench. Well, finally, we come to the actual event. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And there he prays out loud to the Father, and he prays out loud so that they will hear him. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! I just had to do that to wake everybody up. But that's the way he said it. It said he cried out in a loud voice. And the dead man came out. Can you imagine how quiet it must have been just after he said that, after he made that shout? I mean, you'd have to wonder what is going to happen next. Everything has built to this moment. And if Lazarus doesn't come out, I mean, all the cards are on the table now. He said, I'm the resurrection and life. He told him to roll back the stone. He cries Lazarus to come out. If Lazarus doesn't come out, everything he said is for naught. But now they hear the shuffling of feet from the inside of the tomb. And now they see Lazarus standing at the opening of the tomb, probably blinking his eyes through the, through the cloth over his eyes. And we see the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Even John points out the fact that this is the dead man that came out. That's not somebody else that was in there that came out or there was some trick. It was the dead man that came out. And he said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Well, behold the Son of God. Revelation 1, 17 and 18 says, 
But when he, there John falls upon his face and he sees the, the glorified Christ and he's, he says, he comes over and he puts his hand on him and says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He says, I was dead and, and now alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and the grave. What power, what resurrection power. Just three words from the Creator's mouth, Lazarus come forth and the grave released its victim. Look at Revelation 1.18. He holds the keys. Can you imagine what would have happened if the one who created all things by the very power of his word, the same voice that said, let there be light, that said, Lazarus, come forth, if he would have just said, come forth, maybe all the graves in the world would have opened at that moment. He still holds the keys of death and the grave. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. What's the loud command? Maybe it's come forth. Or maybe, he, maybe somehow it's everybody's name come forth. And we will hear our name then. With the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, did you see it then? Did you see the glory? Was your focus on the corpse? That would be possibly Martha until he, he, she got her eyes back on the Lord. She was worried about, by now he stinketh. Don't roll back that, that stone because there's going to be a horrible sight inside. Is it on the Roman government? That's for these ones that went back and told the chief priests and the Pharisees. Or were your eyes on the Christ? Don't miss the glory. Well, final statements there. You cannot glorify God apart from glorifying the Son of God. He is the sent one. We saw that in John chapter 5. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He is the not, does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Sickness is not always the result of one owns, one's own sin, but we should examine ourselves and keep our sin accounts short and then trust God keeping our eyes fixed upon him rather than our own circumstances. Death for the believer is referred to as sleep and points to the glorious awakening on the other side. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant of those who fall asleep. And finally, trust God, trust his power. Is anything too hard for God? Trust his will. He always does right. He does not need additional information. Trust his timing. He's never late. He sometimes delays his answer to prayer. There is a difference. Late means you plan to be there sooner, but something was out of your control. Delay is for a purpose. He delayed two more days so that he could get there and Lazarus had been dead four days. There was a superstition in that day. It's not based on anything in the scriptures, but it is from, biblical, from extra biblical writings. They believed that the spirit, the soul of a deceased person hovered over the body for three days. And after the body became disfigured and the face did not look like the person anymore, the spirit then left the presence of the body. And maybe that's what, why he waited four days, so that they knew he was really dead dead when he was in the tomb. Maybe it was for the stench to, to come so they would know he really was raising Lazarus from the dead. He hadn't just swooned, but he was really dead. Well, finally, um, do you believe in the Son of God? Have you stretched yourself out upon him in faith, trusting I think of the words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. He went through the valley of the shadow of death alone. When he hung there on the cross, 
so that when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we never need to go alone, for thou art with me. He took upon himself our sin, our legal sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, death, the heart stops beating, oxygen stops flowing to the tissues of the brain, the muscles, the lungs. The muscles lose their energy stores, they shorten, they no longer accept electrical impulses and begin accumulating lactic acid, coagulating protoplasm and passing into a state of muscle stiffness, stiffness known as rigor mortis. In time, the cell's walls break down or lice, causing fluid loss and escape of bodily fluids. Putrefaction sets in whereby bacteria brings about decomposition and decay of the human tissues, releasing sodium nitrate, calcium phosphate, and sodium chloride. A good forensic specialist can help determine the time of death based on the degree of rigor mortis and decomposition. Decomposition of proteins form hydrogen sulfide and ammonia, ammonia smells occur by, because certain microorganisms break them down, causing a foul odor. It's called putrefactive necrosis. And Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the very words from Christ turn death to life again because he is the source and wellspring of life. Let us never forget who he is. Help us always to remember the glory of God that is in Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible seventh miracle, this sign, this simion that John has given us. And he says in the end of his book, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the sent one of God. And by believing, you might have life in his name. Help us never to get over the miracle of Lazarus and the fact that Jesus is, in fact, God himself. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.